Let me just open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for speaking to us uh, in these verses, these short verses, Lord, but there's always meaning we can draw from your word. Thank you that you've inspired it through the mouth of your apostle by your spirit. Thank you that you uh, have brought us together here in the name of Jesus so that we can learn from you, sit at your feet, and we can be taught by you. Lord, convict us of sin where we need to be convicted. Remove me from the equation. Let anything that I say that's of me or of my flesh be um, forgotten. Let your word be what stands. And we pray that you would build us up and that we would glorify you as we listen and respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the letter of 1 Timothy that we've been in is one where Timothy is receiving from Paul instruction that's relevant to a number of different groups. And we're reminded that the gospel, even though it's cosmic and it fills the universe, it's news of a new Lord over the entire universe, it's also very granular. And it gets all the way down to our individual lives and different types of lives and people in different stations of society. And sometimes application hurts. Application of God's word can be painful. So we're all okay with the Ten Commandments, a good rule of thumb, right? Thou shalt not murder. But when it comes down to application, wait, wait a second, maybe, maybe God cares about whether or not you vote for someone who supports abortion. The application can hurt. We say love one another. Yes, uh, absolutely, that's, that's biblical. But what about forgiving that person that you're thinking of right now? Again, application can be painful. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's important as well. But when it comes to schooling, maybe, maybe that should affect the way that you school them and where you send them or don't send them to school. God is a consuming fire. Okay, He doesn't leave any part of our lives untouched. Jesus changes everything. And unfortunately, too many men in ministry hold back the full application. They're timid. Timothy was one such pastor, possibly we believe, because Paul instructs him to be bold very often. And as we've been in this series, which we're calling House Rules, drawn from chapter 3, verse 15, he says, he writes these things, Paul does, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So these are God's house rules to his church. And as he's addressing Timothy, he's giving him specific instruction on how to bring the word of God to bear with particular application in the lives of each type of congregant that he's dealing with. He doesn't just give him a general gospel and leave him free to apply it as he sees fit. And it's because, and get this, a healthy local church depends on all of God's people living out all of the gospel's implications, all of God's commands in all of life. The health of this church depends on every one of us living out all of God's law and gospel and their implications in all parts of our lives. And so our text this morning is pretty simple. It's just one command, and then Paul unpacks it. But it's this one basic imperative. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Everything is building on that, but it's just that one command that Paul gives that we're going to dive into today. And so our central assertion this morning, and we'll unpack this statement as well, is that all Christians under authority should honor believing and unbelieving masters as a matter of gospel 
witness. And we'll emphasize that last part, that it's a matter of gospel witness. The title of the message this morning is Missional Slavery for that very reason. So we want to address first the subject of the command, then the content of the command, the reason and the extent of the command. And instead of saving all of our application for the end, we're going to weave that throughout and see what this has to do with our lives. So let's dive into the text. First, the subject of the command. Who is this commandment for? Paul addresses all who are under a yoke as bondservants. The Greek word here is douloi, the plural of doulos, which is otherwise translated slaves. And perhaps some of your own Bibles say slaves there. So these are individuals with no rights. They are in subjugation to a master. Now, in the Roman Empire, this could include somebody with a desk job, somebody with a very high office. Maybe you remember the Ethiopian eunuch from the Book of Acts. He was an official in the court of Queen Candace of Ethiopia, but he was a slave, essentially. But this could also be someone that we would think of as, as really just treated as a, a, as a workhorse. So the spectrum of what this word includes includes people who have a, have a desk job, but they're slaves, that, or people who are indentured servants, or all the way down to, to lowly slaves. But what all of these different versions of slavery share is that the person has no right of self-determination. All of their work product completely belongs to their master. They have no rights. So we might look at this and wonder, well, why is it rendered bondservant here? Why don't we just call it like it is? Why don't we just say slaves? Why didn't the translators of the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, choose the word slaves? Well, Part of the issue is that the translators know that we have baggage on this particular topic relating to what we think of immediately, which is chattel slavery in the United States history. And that was a form of slavery. But it's important that we remember that not all slavery in Scripture is that. Okay, so that was slavery, but not all slavery in the Bible is that. But the word here is doulos. It is slave. There's one word for slave that we see used throughout most of the New Testament. We can't skip over this. This is a critical apologetic issue. There was a number of years ago on CNN, a debate between the late Jerry Falwell Sr. and uh, liberal Episcopal bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong. And in the course of the conversation, it was over sexual ethics and morality and, and some of the issues that Jerry Falwell dealt with in his day and age. And Jerry Falwell was defending the traditional view of of marriage and sexuality and those sorts of things. And his exact words escape me, but Spong raised the claim, well, the Bible was wrong about slavery. Why can't it be wrong about sexuality as well? That's the question that maybe some of us have asked, and certainly there are unbelievers that we know that will ask that type of question from us. This is an apologetic issue. Is the Bible backwards on the topic of slavery? And if it is, does that mean it's wrong about other things? That's what we have to grapple with. It's no light issue. And I will assert this morning the Bible is not backwards on this topic. We need to let scripture interpret itself. And so I just want to hit pause and let's just trace that theme of slavery from beginning to end. Let's do a little bit of biblical theology, which is when you take a theme or a motif in scripture and you see how that's developed through redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. And first, let's establish some categories here. So in scripture, slavery can be broken down different ways. There's 
physical slavery and physical freedom, and there's spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom. And these categories are distinct, but sometimes they also overlap. Physical slavery and freedom, spiritual slavery and freedom. Adam, starting in the garden, was created physically and spiritually free in the image of God. In fact, because of the image of God, Genesis 1.27, no one is a mere animal. No one is mere property. That's critical. But when Adam sinned, he and all of his posterity became spiritually slaves. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. So the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they and all of their children, all of us, are spiritual slaves. And this opens the door for physical enslavement to arrive in society too. And then when God starts redeeming a people, move with Exodus to me, when he starts his plan of redemption, even before we get to Exodus, you see with Abraham, he has two wives. He, er, excuse me, not, not two wives. He has two sons. One is the child of his wife, the free woman. The other is the child of Hagar, the slave girl. And even though we, we look back and we're, we wonder what's going on with, with, with Ishmael and with Isaac and why is Hagar treated the way that she's treated, but we see something here, which is that God chooses to work through the descendant of the free woman, not the slave. That's in Genesis 21, verses 10 through 12. The Apostle Paul makes reference to that in Galatians 3.31 as well. So he works through the free lineage. And then... When Abraham's descendants in Exodus, when they grow into a full people, they're in physical slavery in Egypt. And how does God give a preview of what he's planning in redemption? He releases them from their physical bonds of slavery. And it's so that they can taste a better spiritual freedom that's coming. And you see this all throughout the Exodus, um, chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, God says, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, God wants his people to know very early in redemptive history that he is a God of freedom. And that's why when Israel receives the law, slavery, it's not forbidden. The institution of slavery still exists in Old Testament law. But it's also heavily regulated because God is a God of freedom. So a slave could consent to be indentured for life. In Deuteronomy 15, verses 16 and 17 regulate this. But also, Hebrew slaves, people who were a part of that covenant community, had to be released in the seventh year. That law is given in Exodus 21, verse 2. And by the way, man-stealing, kidnapping, is a capital offense. Exodus 21, 16. So if this had been obeyed in America's past, there would have been no transatlantic slave trade. Because if you kidnap someone in the Old Testament, you deserve to die. So you cannot kidnap people and sell them as slaves. But as we see Israel's history develop, you note that without changed hearts, Israel falls into sin and judgment and they're exiled. They become functional slaves in their own land. We know about the exile, right? We know that they were shipped off to Babylon and then the Persians took over and eventually they were allowed to return. But both Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra 9.9, Nehemiah 9.36, make reference to them being slaves, being like slaves even in their own land. Why? 
See, because you can't have physical freedom, truly, without having spiritual freedom. And Israel had physical freedom for a season in its history, but they didn't have that full and fully realized spiritual freedom yet. That was yet to come. And it arrived with Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Philippians 2.7, Jesus took the form of a slave. Jesus gave up his rights, his freedoms, his prerogatives, and obeyed his Father unconditionally to free us. He bought us from our old master. He gives us a new master. Romans 6.18, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So spiritual freedom is a category that transcends physical slavery and freedom. Whether you are physically a slave or physically free, you can be spiritually free either way. You can know God. You can be free from the bonds of sin. You know, just browsing Facebook last night, I saw that there was uh, some sort of neuroscientific study that was released where uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, they're beginning to catch up to the fact that you always do exactly what you want in every situation. You're enslaved to your will, right? You, whatever choice you make, you make it because you have a desire to make that choice on some level, even if there's coercion involved. Neuroscience is only catching up to what scripture has told us, which is that you are a slave to your will, whether it's to obey God and live righteously or whether to sin. We know that in scripture. So Christ comes and he brings spiritual freedom and an implication of this is what Colossians 3 and Galatians 3 both say, which is that in Christ, there is no slave or free or Jew or Greek. All of these different sociological categories become irrelevant at the foot of the cross. And it's because in eternity, in the consummated kingdom, uh, Ken is going to be talking to us about heaven during our fellowship hour and our coffee time. In eternity, there is no slavery. It's not a thing. So how does the rest of the New Testament, after Christ, interpreting the work of Christ, applying it to our lives, how does the New Testament deal with slavery now? It allows the institution to exist while subverting it in the gospel. Listen with me. I'm going to read a few verses. I won't tell you where they're from. Paul says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to a person, I thank my God when I remember you, In my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all his saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts, excuse me, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's writing to an individual. Who is being addressed? Philemon, a slave owner. It's Philemon verses 3 through 7. Paul speaks highly of someone that our society would condemn outright. So in the New Testament, you see that slavery as an institution is tolerated. The mere fact that slaves and masters exist in the New Testament church is not inherently sinful for the apostles and the writers of Scripture What is sinful, what is inexcusable, is any abuse or injustice or unfairness happening within that context. Does that make sense? 
So this spiritual freedom that we have in the gospel reshapes society. The gospel undermines slavery altogether. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, even as he's encouraging people, be content in whatever your station of life is. He's giving this encouragement. Listen, if you're single, don't worry about it. You can stay single. You're fulfilled in Christ. He's giving this sort of instruction. But he does say to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He doesn't say that to anyone else, but he does say to slaves, freedom is better than slavery. He acknowledges that fact. There's instructions for masters, too. In Colossians 4.1, Ephesians 6.9, they both say that masters must treat slaves, bond servants, indentured servants fairly, justly, and they are not to threaten. They're to put away all threatening. Why? Because they have a master. Jesus is the real master. But listen, if in Christ there's no slave or free, you can only, and imagine yourself living in the first century, if you're Philemon or someone like him, you can only worship side by side with your, your slave Onesimus. You can only enjoy that fellowship for so long. You can only partake of the Lord's Supper together as equals for so long until something clicks. And you realize that this entire gospel undermines slavery. In fact, in the Roman world, Christianity became known as a religion of women and slaves because of the unusual, uh, radical, and scandalous way that it dignified these lower classes of society as they were viewed. How does the gospel transform society? How did we get here, right, to the point where we would all condemn slavery? Well, 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 the gospel does not come into a culture or society like a sledgehammer. Kim Nob's job in Tanzania is to not look at Tanzanian culture and society and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and then just come in and condemn all of it outright. The gospel works itself into a culture the way yeast works itself into, a, in, into the dough. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Matthew 13, 33 compares the kingdom of God to yeast and dough. It's a little mustard seed that grows over time. If Christianity had just come in off the bat in the Roman world and just advocated full abolition of slavery immediately, who's to say that the Romans wouldn't have immediately squelched that rebellion because of the economic impact that it would have, right? It couldn't have survived. So the gospel isn't a sledgehammer. Listen, it's, it's a pebble. It's a little pebble in the shoe of the giant of the world system that topples the giant. And you remember Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of all these kingdoms of the world represented in this multi-layered statue, but it's a little, little stone, it's a little pebble that hits the bottom, that knocks the whole thing out, and then that stone becomes a mountain that fills the earth. And that's a picture of what Christ does, is that he takes on the form of a slave, and he comes, and he undermines the world system. But that little pebble in the shoe of the giant becomes a mountain that fills the world from the United States to Tanzania, every tribe, tongue, and culture. And it fills the world and it fills our thinking wherever the gospel goes so much that here we are 2,000 years later and a liberal Episcopal priest like John Shelby Spong can borrow capital from the Christian worldview, can steal from Christian ethics and assumptions that we have about love of neighbor that only came to us because of the Bible. And he can borrow from the Christian worldview to condemn anything that even smells like slavery. But you wouldn't have heard anyone in the first century saying that. He has to borrow capital 
from our worldview because we believe in equality and in the image of God and in conditional love of neighbor and that in Christ there are none of these differences between different groups and categories and classes. He has to assume that in order to condemn slavery. It's anachronistic. So this is what the gospel does. It transforms society. It transforms all of us. That's why we began by saying that application hurts sometimes because the gospel is cosmic, but it also comes down to the specific level and has implications for our lives. And here's the thing, though. That does mean that we can't afford to shave off the sharp edges of Scripture because it does say, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's in the text. Slaves are to fully honor their own masters. We can't tamper with the text. Is that popular? No. Is there more that Scripture says than just this to the situation that slaves find themselves in? Yes, and we've surveyed some of that. But we can't shave off the sharp edges here. And so the first point of application that we want to draw from the subject of the command, the fact that it's written to slaves of all people, is that the gospel affects how we live in every station of society. The gospel has a word to slaves. Even though our victim mentality in culture wants to say that if, if you are in an oppressed position, you are good. You, there's, you are inherently good. You are clean. You're secure. The Lord Jesus has instructions even to people who are subjugated. He has rules even for them. Scripture also has commands for masters. Most of history has sided on, on, on the side of the oppressors. Right now, we tend to side on, on the victim. But listen... Jesus has a word for all of them, for masters, for slaves. He has a word for employees and their employers. We need to draw that out and apply it to ourselves today. He has a word to say to your boss, to your foreman. He has a word to say to you. He has a word to say to your subordinates at work. We have to apply it because we're all under a yoke as bond servants. Romans 1.1 the Apostle Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, and that's what we are. We are all, brothers and sisters, slaves of Christ. And that doesn't mean that we're undignified. That doesn't mean that we're not cared for. But it does mean that we willingly give up our rights to Jesus. It does mean that we give over our authority, our autonomy, our self-determination, Not that we ever had them, but that's true freedom. True freedom is slavery to Christ. That's where we start. When we view ourselves as slaves to Christ, then no matter how painful the application of God's word is, we'll do it. And that's where true freedom is. So the subject of the command is slaves, and we all find ourselves slaves of Christ. What is the content of the command? Who is being commanded? It's slaves. Well, what is being commanded of slaves? It says, let them regard their own masters as worthy of all timais. The word there means to ascribe value to someone, to honor them. And the theme of honor should be evident if you've been paying attention through this series, because at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul encouraged Timothy to to honor those who are elders over him in the church. Uh, then Timothy is encouraged to honor widows. And finally, he's told to uh, honor those who are elders as far as occupying the official church position there. So you see that in 
verse 3 and verse 17 of chapter 5. But here's the interesting thing, is that honor there pertains not only to showing respect, but also, and this is missing when we use the word honor, it also means rendering that which is due to someone who deserves honor. So with widows, when he says honor widows, he's actually talking about supporting them materially, that the church should show benevolence, the church should support those who are truly widows, who have served, who have shown themselves trustworthy, with elders, it, it says, let, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. The context there is compensation. It's, it's how much you pay your pastor. So honor means not just you show respect, not just you say, yes, sir. Res- honor, biblically, means you give that person what is due. So for the slave to the master, that means that the slave is to render service to the master. The employee is to render service and work to the company, to the employer. The child is to render obedience to the parent. We can apply this across the board. So Christians must honor those in authority over them by giving them what's deserved. And notice it says what type of honor? It says all honor or full honor. We could also translate this. So the idea here being it's not conditional. It's not only when you're treated well. It's not only when you feel appreciated. It's not when you feel like it, and it's not just outward. It's not merely saluting the individual that you report to, but inwardly harboring resentment and irritation towards that person. This is all honor, inside and out. So our second point of application is that Christians must honor those in authority over them. But what's the reason for this command? Why is Paul worried about this here? He gives a reason for the command at the end of verse 1, so that, and it's a compound reason, he lists two things, the name of God, and second, the teaching may not be reviled. And the word teaching here we could render as doctrine. So this isn't just teaching in general. This is specifically, this is the doctrinal content of the Christian faith. And the word reviled literally is the word blasphemed. We're talking about somebody rejecting the name of God and the content of Christian teaching, rejecting it to the point of blaspheming it, spitting on the gospel. Now, question. Why are we accountable to God? Why is it that God owns us? Why do we owe him anything in terms of obedience, in terms of honor? We've discussed that we're slaves of Christ. Well, why is that? There's a twofold reason. First is that he made us. He owns us. He is our authority in creation. We bear his image. That means we owe him. But second is that he owns us again in redemption. Christ bled and died for all who would believe in him. So that makes him doubly owner of us. He owns us twice over in creation and in redemption. And I think that that twofold distinction of creation and redemption is evident here because he says the name of God. And then he also says the teaching. And what is the content of our teaching? It's the the doctrine of the Lord Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the things that Timothy is commanded to teach. So disrespecting authority, failing to show full honor, undermines God's authority over us in creation and it undermines Christ's lordship over us in redemption. It's a twofold slap in the face 
to the fact that we bear God's image and the fact that Jesus is our Lord. Don't be that guy who talks a big game at work, who invites people to church, who evangelizes your coworker and your employees, but you're lazy, but you're a bad worker, but you're a bad employee. You don't bring results. You don't get the job done. You call out without warning. You show up late. You leave early. Don't be that guy. Because listen, for you, who's having a hard time submitting to that employer, to say, by the way, you should meet my Lord. <laughs> Let me introduce you to my master. It doesn't fit. Ironically, sometimes we try to protect the name of God and the teaching by denying the command here. See, actually, the way that we think that we can be an effective gospel witness is to put out of mind and kind of suppress the, the unpopular things that Scripture says about submitting to authority and about slaves and masters. We, we think that we protect the name of God by downplaying some of those things. The best way that we could support the name of God and the teaching is by being good, hard workers wherever we're under authority. So the third point of application is that our work affects our witness. Our work affects our witness. And this should be a motivation to us because it may be hard to honor your boss. It's sometimes incredibly difficult to give the obedience to your employer that you maybe you don't respect him. He is a jerk. He's unjust. He's unfair. He doesn't pay his people. He doesn't treat them well. But this can motivate us. Do we want to honor Jesus? Do we want the name of God and the teaching to be reviled or or do we want to see Jesus believed and loved by that employer, by that superior over us? Do we want to see the gospel blasphemed, or do we want to see it embraced? That should motivate us. Because if I'm enduring this with my employer, whatever injustice is happening, if I'm enduring that as a witness, if I'm doing that as a missionary, well, that changes everything. But Paul does anticipate an objection in Ephesus, they would have said, but wait a minute, my master's already a Christian. Or maybe they would have said this, hey, I'm free in Christ. I, there, in Christ, there is no slave or free. I don't have to submit to authority, right? Like, we're all equals at the foot of the cross, you know? Uh, they, they would have said that. And so we want to finish by looking at the extent of the command in verse 2. How far do we take this command, Paul? Are you really saying that that this matters, even if my master's already a believer, even though I'm free in Christ. Those who have believing masters, verse 2, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. See, Paul knows that application sometimes hurts, so he drills down deeper. Do you see that? He drills down deeper in his application like a good minister of the word. And evidently, some of the Christian slaves in Ephesus were excusing themselves from submitting to their masters because those masters themselves were believers. Well, we know how this goes. Why are they doing that? Why are they excusing themselves? We know how this goes, right? Proximity tests love. Proximity tests love. It's easier to love a child on a television screen for some sort of overseas charity or a, a children's hospital or it's easier to, to pay it forward in the Starbucks line where you're never even going to meet that person. You're, you're loving them from a distance. It's easier to do that than to speak gently to your wife and children. 
than to ask your mother or father for forgiveness, than to show real tangible love, you know, to do the dishes, to change that diaper, to the person in closer proximity to you. Unfortunately, all too often, the people closest to us in our own households see the worst of us. The people that we talk to in the grocery line, they they see the best public representation of us that we hope we can put out there. The people at home just tend to see the worst of us. I'm guilty of this as anyone is. And this happens in church, too. An unbeliever comes in, and we want to we schmooze them. We want to welcome them. We're excited. But then we're, when we're dealing with conflict among believers in the church, it's like, I can't stand that person, right? And how do we justify this? We say, well, they're, they're held to a higher standard as Christians. They, and, and they are. Those who name the name of Christ are held to a higher standard but we're also held to a higher standard in loving them. And that's what we can't miss in the workplace, at home, or anywhere. And as for the other objection, well, I'm free in Christ. Paul simply disarms that, and implying that there is no excuse. Freedom in Christ is no excuse to cast off restraints and to show dishonor. Remember, this is the same Paul who wrote in Philippians 2.7 that Christ assumed the form of a slave. So if Jesus can take the form of a bondservant, I can too. In fact, Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, even though he was free, he could have taken a wife, he could have benefited financially from his ministry. He says, yet I became all things to all people so that by any means I may win some. So he had a missional reason to forfeit his own rights. He was doing it evangelistically. And Paul backs this up by giving two reasons to serve masters who are Christians, to show honor to believing masters. He says, because those who benefit from your good service are believers and beloved. And that word beloved there, I mean, they're beloved by those who serve them. They're also beloved of God. The, The root word here is the same word from which we get agape. You're familiar with agape love. This is a strong biblical word for love. Let's think about that. They're believers and they're beloved. Let's apply this to our own context too because proximity does make it harder to love. But if you are in Christ and if I am in Christ, that alone is sufficient reason for me to serve you. That is reason enough. So if you burn your hand while you're cooking, let's say you're working in the oven and you burn your hand and you get a significant burn, or maybe you cut yourself while while chopping vegetables or something like that. Your hand doesn't have to earn your approval for you to treat the injury, does it? You don't have to wait until it cries out to you, and you're like, all right, fine, just slap a bandage on there. No, you immediately tend to it, because it's part of you. And the body of Christ works the same way. If we're members of Christ, we're members of each other. If one person is hurting, we are to serve them. Love starts in the household of God. It shouldn't be easier for us to love people who are distant than people who are close within our own covenant community. Love should start with other believers. We shouldn't let those who are closest to us see the worst of us. So for a Christian slave living in Ephesus, hearing this letter that was written to Timothy from Paul, yes, even if your master is a Christian, even if the the guy that you resent Monday morning at work is sitting next to you on the pew. That's all the more reason that you should honor and serve him well. 
And so this is our final point of application this morning. Christians are called to work hard as unto the Lord in loving service. Christians are called to work hard as unto the Lord in loving service. Colossians 3.23 tells us to work as unto the Lord and not for men. And Ephesians 6.7, listen to this. Paul says, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So whether you're the employee or the employer, whatever rank you occupy, whatever good you do for someone else will be paid back to you from the Lord. If you do it for the Lord, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers, but if you do it as unto the Lord. And you see at the end of verse 2, it might run into the next paragraph for you, depending on the Bible that you're looking at, that Paul concludes all of this by saying, teach and urge these things. So this is the rule. Timothy is to teach and urge these things. This is not just the exception for super-Christians who are feeling particularly forgiving on a given day. This is the rule, not the exception. Timothy, like Paul, for his congregation, is to press the application of the word of God into every nook and cranny of his people's lives, into all corners of the church. This church here, this building, this community, this is where we are equipped for life in the world on mission. This is not the game. This is the huddle. The game is the other six days a week where we go out from here and we live on mission in all of our callings. The the Christian life, the the rhythm of a seven-day week following God is it's an elliptical orbit. Okay, it's we're rotating, we're we're drawn, we gather together, we're gravitationally drawn to God and to His Son. And once a week we find ourselves closer than at the other points of the week, and we gather on the Lord's Day and rest and worship, but then we're we're flung back out into the darkness, into our callings, all just to come back. See, the Christian life is on this sort of elliptical orbit. And so he's to teach and urge these things. He's to give the application of God's word to everyone, wherever they find themselves in life. And good pastors press the gospel into every nook and cranny of life, even when application hurts, even when the Bible has painful things to say about slaves and masters, husbands and wives, wives and husbands, children and parents. So whether you are slave or free, whether you're the boss or the employee, whatever your station is in life, whether you're the child in the home under your parents' authority, whether you've been an empty nester for years, wherever you find yourself, be a missionary there. Care about the name of God and the teaching. Care that they're not reviled. If you find yourself surrounded by Christians all around you, that's no excuse to slack off. Well, I can't live as a missionary here because everybody's already saved. That's the place to do it all the better. Because when you love the people in your calling, you're not just loving people out there. You're loving the body of Christ. So be a missionary in your calling. Work hard as a witness. Live as a slave to Jesus on the job or at home. That is where we find true freedom. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity to us. We are your slaves. Lord, we are free in Christ, free from sin, free from condemnation, free from interacting with your law and viewing it as though it's this heavy, weighty thing that we we don't want to submit to. 
Jesus, your burden is easy. It's light. And so as we recognize that we're slaves of Jesus, we recognize that there's no better master to have. You are good. You love us. You nourish us. You view us as your own body. You view us as your bride. And we are free in Christ. So help us, Lord, to live as free people so that through our lives, through the way that we work, not just the words that we speak, but the way that we work on the job, the way that we work in our homes, the way that we interact with our families, let your love be evident in us and help us to be good missionary slaves. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.